0: Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me, directed by David Lynch. Note, before we start, uh, this was the second time I wasn't completely faithful to the viewing schedule of once per day with the cinema immersion tank. Perhaps one can be forgiven due to certain unforeseen circumstances, uh, such as the 2016 presidential election. But let's not get into that, shall we? On to the light viewing. Oh, and spoilers, of course, if you have not seen the show and intend to, or are only so far into the series. When this project got underway, I wasn't sure entirely how it would go. I had a rough list of films, some I knew I would watch, some that were on the fence, and I have gone through many of them. But one thing that I was most uncertain of was how to proceed with films that I had seen before. One of the facets of this is to explore the true unknown, to have that first viewing experience of a film unseen before, and then to dive in deeper. At least that's in my case. It's one thing to go in already with preconceived notions, and that is something that I've done, see parts one, three, and 11 of the movies I had seen before in the Tank experience. Though for the most part, I was basing my decision based on the reputation of the film and or director, such as with Todd Salons and Happiness, or because I'd seen their work before like with Lena Workmuller. Only with one film, *Julian Donkey Boy, did I go in thinking I might not like it at all, or at least had some genuine concerns about its quality. With Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, not only had I viewed it, it was one of those genuine disappointments at the time from a director I'm quite passionate about. Twin Peaks the TV show was and is a cultural phenomenon, bringing soap opera and experimental surrealism into a package that, of all places, Middle America could eat up. But it also was about real things, amid the folksy and quirky bits about coffee and pie and other things about owls and the log lady and all those small town characters. Alienation, abuse, intrigue, rage, sexism, and all those ugly things just underneath the belly of what can seem so charming and likable about people in the world, Or sometimes the characters are how they are, but there's a whole other universe, an alternate dimension, where a dreamscape takes on another form in the, quote, Black Lodge. The movie was Lynch's attempt at salvaging something, anything, after the show was cancelled after a 29-episode run. And he decided to go the route of a prequel, telling the story of Laura Palmer's final week, leading up to her death in a lonely, dark train car in the middle of the night in the woods and then wrapped in plastic, as it were. And it didn't feel like Twin Peaks, no e Bob, not the Twin Peaks that I knew, and I didn't seem to be alone in that assessment, with other critics and audience members being disappointed. Or at least that was the impression I had nearly ten years ago on a first viewing. But I've come to realize, in the decades since, that times change, feelings change, about movies and a deeper appreciation of the movies that are often called a director's worst end up having some genuinely subversive and creative qualities. Lynch is one of America's true visionaries, someone who puts his all into his work, even when it doesn't all work. Dune is as a prime example, and I can never help but admire it. So for the sake of this crazy ass experiment, why not dive in and see what happens when submerged over and over in the story of Laura Palmer. What I came away with is that it is still a problematic film, and yet at the same time, one I gained respect for, in some varying degrees. And a large part of this comes from the latest Blu-ray release. Before I get into that, a very brief rundown of how Lynch and his co-writer and Peaks regular scribe, Robert Engels, frame this narrative. Two agents we haven't met before from the show, Chet Desmond and Sam Stanley, Chris Isaac and Kiefer Sutherland, respectively, are assigned to the case of Teresa Banks, a woman found dead, wrapped in plastic, a year before the events of the show. It's a mysterious case that leads them to a standoffish sheriff, a tired and slightly dazed trailer park landlord, Harideen Stanton, and many clues that don't add up to too much. Desmond goes missing. David Bowie shows up for a minute, and Agent Dale Cooper tries to find what happened to Desmond without much luck. And then it's a year later, and now it's on Dolores' story, but with a few of those little things from that first 35 minutes of the film. Kind of, sort of, maybe in cryptic pieces. Like putting together a jigsaw puzzle in 98% darkness, naked, with strobe lights going off at intervals while people do contortion dances around and, and... Yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that. All this leads me to a point that I couldn't help but notice on the many viewings. For all of its radical experimentation with the form of cinema in several moments, in some large and several ways, it's very curious how Lynch, not unlike George Lucas with Star Wars, who, as many film geeks know, offered Lynch Return of the Jedi, by the way. A film which has some of this kind of structure, oddly enough. A short film that works almost on its own, Jabba's Palace, and then the rest of the story starts a third of the way in. It went back into his own distinct mythological brand to tell a story that, arguably, didn't need to be told. When I watch a film sometimes, a feeling like that frozen spot in the back of your throat or neck while eating ice cream comes up. This film has good qualities, maybe great qualities, at least interesting ones, but was it necessary to be brought to the screen? I can defend some part of the prequels, maybe some parts more than others. But at the end of the day, to paraphrase Pat Oswald, do you care where things come from, or do you simply like the things you like? Having said all of this, and up until perhaps the fourth viewing, having that feeling of, did we really have to see this really? I took it upon myself to focus on what is strong about this experience. And it is a truly strong, at times shocking in its potency experience. And at other times, it's when Lynch lets things get contemplative that say more than the harrowing melodramatic, no sorry, bombastic, Italian operatic beats and crescendos and pitches. Take the little moment of dialogue between Laura Palmer and her best friend, Donna Hayward. He loves you with that everlasting love, true love. Yes, James is very sweet. Why don't you get out your violin, Donna? Sweet. God, he's gorgeous. Yes, James is very sweet. Very gorgeous. I wonder if Mike could ever write a poem. think that if you were falling in space that you would slow down after a while or go faster and faster? Faster and faster. And for a long time you wouldn't feel anything. And then you'd burst into fire. And the angels wouldn't help you. I would even go as far as to say there are flourishes of poetry here. Whether it's visual with aural, the repetition of that Angelo Badalamenti score for the pink room when characters are in the lounge, or said in words. Here is the famous log lady's appearance in the film. When this kind of fire starts, it is very hard to put out. The tender boughs of innocence burn first, and the wind rises, and then all goodness is in jeopardy. And if nothing else, the performances generally are, unlike in those pesky Star Wars prequels, explosive, full of passion and horror in good ways, which is important, but could easily fall into going so over the top that it's a level of camp. That may be the point. Lynch, a student of Kubrick, I'm sure has seen The Shining, and overtones of that may be here to an extent. The one with the most layers is that of Laura Palmer herself, Cheryl Lee. She only appeared sporadically on the show as Laura, and mostly as her cousin Maddie. Lee dances with this being too much, too many frantic screams, too many moments of shaking contortions mania of possibly maybe getting away with a performance through giving a look or a wild smile. But the stylization of it is not all Lynch direction, though it's some. It's an actor so committing to the scenes given to her of a daughter traumatized both mentally see that dinner scene where he interrogates her and then the next bedroom scene where he apologizes in a way that makes it feel worse laura more desperate and then physically the actual rape and molestation that her father leland aka sometimes the notorious bob did to his daughter before killing her in that begotten train car that i couldn't help but feel my guts torn out the more times i watched her my would do that. Bob. But Bob is not real. There are pages torn out. That is real, Harold. Okay, okay, well maybe. maybe. Okay. Bob is real. He's been having me since I was 12. And the diary was hidden too well. There is no other person who could have known where it was. He comes in through my window at night. He's real. He's getting to know me now. He speaks to me. What does Bob say? He says he wants to be me or he'll kill me. No. No. Yes. Yes. What, what? Please. What? Fire. Walk. With. Me. <laughs> what seemed on that first watch years back to be losing the tone of the show was deeper and more tragic through her performance, and Ray Wise's Leland is equally a presence to behold as he makes this an extreme human monster of fatherhood on screen, expanding from his role on the show. But what gets lost here is the tone. Regardless of whether you've seen the show or not, or willing to give the movie its benefit of the doubt, it largely lacks nearly all humor. An actor may try to get something in there, possibly an improvisation like Bobby's random dance that makes him look like a primate as he goes away from Laura back into the school. Or, of course, when Dale Cooper sees the man from the other place, played by Michael Anderson, in his timeline before he first sees him on the show. That's all fine. And yet, and here I go back to my prequel comparison, you lose part of the soul of what has come before when going squarely into the realm of doing something else, in this case, a horror film. And make no mistake, this is a horror film, deep down in its bones, with Lynch and Engels going, okay, I went pretty far with Blue Velvet, and barely anything can match on Twin Peaks when Leland kills Maddie. editor's note. That is not only the most chilling scene in TP history, it's one of the major horror moments of anything in 21st century. But what else can I do? What else Lynch does is make things cryptic and mysterious, while also giving us moments with characters on the show that before left some mystery for us, that got gradually revealed. In particular, Laura's relationships with Bobby. This almost becomes funny, but in a sick way. A not fucking funny Laura way. And James. Just, well, he loved her a lot, that's about it. And then there's that opening half hour with a strange woman who gives off clues that only Agent Desmond knows, but he can't tell what the blue rose she wears is all about to Stanley. Or things like the man from another place's Indian chant that goes across telephone lines. Or what a little boy in a white mask has to do with anything. After five viewings, your guess is as good as mine or an extreme close-up of a monkey in infra-green vision, and then there's David Bowie sc- seeming to walk in from another movie, even if it's a dream sequence which is unclear here, and... <sighs> I could go on. Huh? It's worth noting that, for many years, over 90 minutes of scenes from the movie were thought to be lost. With the recent release of the com- complete mystery box set, This is as of 2014, by the way, a new season of the show returns for 2017. These scenes were restored. I watched this, and some scenes made perhaps, if not more sense, at least certain gaps in logic got filled. Bowie, playing a special agent dressed as if the actor got right off the set for a music video from his Let's Dance album, has his full scene restored without the jump cuts to the other Lodge or whatever it was that's shown with the TV static. In another scene, we see a fistfight break out between that nasty sheriff of the podump town and Desmond, which actually adds some nice dramatic flourish to finish off the tension established, whether it was earned or not, between the FBI and the local town authorities. We see characters not in the film at all from the show, like Sheriff Truman, Lucy and Andy, Pete and Josie, a longer scene with more context with Leo Johnson and Shelley at their place, so it's not just a domestic abuse moment. And among the big things for me are seeing Grace Sabrisky as Sarah Palmer have some more scenes of Cheryl Lee. She even gets to smile once or twice. Sarah Palmer is a full character here. And a funny, yes funny, little scene with the three Palmers doing a bit around You guessed it, the Norwegians. And the other is seeing what the fuck happened right around after the end of season two. As it is in the film, Heather Graham, who played Annie on the show, appears in a moment in Laura's bed, giving an instruction that, even in Lynchian dream logic, makes zero sense. And it's electrifying, to say the least. In other words, if one were to ever be ambitious enough and try to edit the two films together... Fire Walk With Me and The Missing Pieces, which could be difficult if not possible it would come out to a long but satisfying epic story at four hours. Seeing those 90 minutes dubbed The Missing Pieces is akin to seeing those missing scenes from Apocalypse Now, only here they feel like they're needed for the story, as pieces which, while not all perfect and occasionally with pacing issues, that they could have made Fire Walk With Me a more entertaining film, somewhat closer to the tone of the show, and allowing for more room than simply the absolute doom and gloom of what happens before us, as is. Fire Walk With Me is a gloomy story, a painfully sad one, and yet there are times when Lynch lets himself fly head-on, with heedless abandon, it might seem, into the despair and degradation that Laura Palmer gets herself into. In one long stretch, we get two such set pieces, when Laura, after suddenly running into the log lady. Here's one of those saddest songs in the world, sung by Julie Cruz at the bar. Picks up two guys, Uh uh-oh, there's Donna too. And then they head off to this pink room lounge, with this thudding jazz rock playing live and loud, so that everyone talking has to speak in subtitles. As Laura dances with a man she doesn't know, getting naked and downed with her bassist, drug-addled and hoardy instincts, it's a terribly wonderful scene to behold, maybe the highlight of the film. This despite the fact that it veers close into pretentious territory with Jack Renault's wine line. I am blank as a fart. I still don't know what that means either. I'm not sure if by the end of this tank experience, I got everything in the movie. This may be by design or by me still not getting things. When you're dealing with the deepest and darkest experimental designs, it's bound to be full of colorful explosions of light and sound and symbols that are intentionally obtuse, pregnant with meaning that some of us mortals will need to ruminate on in dreams or meditation. Or it may mean something else to someone else, which is what art is all about. But at the end of the day, this is a Lynch film, and though it is flawed with its bouts of violence for shock factor, yes, this is a thing that happens here for me, with a particular murder that happens before the ending, and flourishes that feel like the result of cutting down so much to fit 134 minute running time, as opposed to full creative decisions. Ironically, the problem Lynch had on Dune, only here he is in control of the final cut. It carries the intensity of a story that he feels should be told, or at least if he's gonna go back to Twin Peaks after being away, he better try something a little different and throw everyone off. Did it work? Though liking it more than before and seeing its merits as a standalone effort, I just don't know. Some odds and ends. Number one, there is a ring that is used as, I suspect, a sort of totem or talisman or something. I can't recall now if it was featured prominently on the show and on its own terms has some symbolic weight, though I also can't shake off how the ring is what's used to tie together Teresa Banks and Laura Palmer and why it matters so that whoever wears it becomes a target for Bob or whoever comes from that other area full of that garmon bosia, or pain pain in anguish maybe it just needed to be a I guess MacGuffin or maybe it's not that maybe it's more important than that that's just a side note number two I can't stress enough how worth it is to see The Missing Pieces if only for Bowie's scenes. Seeing him in his full, whacked-out, southern-accented glory and seeing what the hell he meant by we're not going to talk about Judy, we're not going to talk about her at all, made me miss Bowie all the more. R.I.P. Number three. Despite some other tonal issues, somehow having Maura Kelly in the place of Laura Flynn Boyle isn't distracting. That is, after the first couple of viewings. A shame it couldn't have been used as some kind of artistic statement, but that's how the casting crooky Crookie cumbles sometimes. On that note, number four, Chris Isaac is unconvincing here, maybe the worst performance of the film. I wasn't sure at times if he was supposed to be this way, but he reminded me of someone doing an audition for Mr. Blonde in Reservoir Dogs. Like, he could do the bark-all-day bit to the sheriff, and it wouldn't make a difference. Also, a little moment where Desmond pulls a small, practical joke on Stanley with a cup of coffee at Hap's Diner feels totally out of place, and not in a way that's amusing. Number five. Little callbacks to the show should be fun, but a couple stand out as being too on the nose, like Cooper discovering the let's rock words marked on Desmond's car. Number six. Harry Dean Stanton... Is in the movie and as the Roger Ebert rule goes any movie with him can't be all that bad right turns out also the case here and to close number seven one of the symbols Lynch uses here is an angel in his way pretty much literally as Laura looks to a small painting in her room where an angel helps two little children at a table later on the angel appears again I think the intention was to give Laura a speck of hope after all this hell Each and every time, it left a slightly sour taste in my mouth and mind, like Lynch couldn't help but pour on the obvious imagery as something genuinely touching. It falls flat to me, and lacks the subversive energy of so much else in the movie that he gets that are more successfully deranged, like the little boy in the mask, or the monkey, or the other dancing guy who... Well, anyway, see you in 25 years.